Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you that we can be together this morning, that um, we see the evidences of spring around us that remind us that life springs from death after winter ends. And would you, would you help us today to, as we open your word to be able to see it, to be able to hear it, and ultimately to be able to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. You pray that you would still our hearts, that you would help our minds to slow down, and to be present, that we might hear from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome today. I'm glad that you're here. Um, there's, it's, it's good to be able to worship together. We are in a series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John 10 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open it with us to John chapter 10, and we will get into that passage in just a minute. Today, as we continue on, uh, we're, Jesus had been teaching, so it's kind of continuing a section where he, was, he used imagery of of shepherding and with sheep. And so we looked into that last week that he talked about uh, the sheep pen and his people knowing his voice and that he is the gate that we come into and out of the community of God's people through and that he is the good shepherd who ultimately lays down his life for the sheep. And so this gets into imagery. As John wrote his gospel, it's, it's all written to introduce us to who Jesus is. And so John was writing this so that we would understand who Jesus is. And, and for us, if you follow Jesus, if you are one of those sheep that hears his voice and follows him, that becomes something that shapes who we are and reshapes how we see ourselves. Every one of us has a, a way that we tell our own story, right? When you meet somebody, the things that you decide to pull out, when somebody says, like, who are you? What, what's, you know, I want to get to know you. And, and how do you, def there's a question of how do you define yourself? What do you jump to first? Is it your work? It seems to be regular in this town, right? You say, who are you? And somebody's like, I am a staffer. It's like, cool. Let's go back a little bit. <laughs> Um, and so what, what are the stories that you tell? We all do this. We have kind of a rehearsed version like, of our origin story, which it seems right now like that's like the thing that can happen in movies, by the way. We can either redo movies that have already been done or tell the origin story of people that were in movies that were already done. But how do you tell the story of your origin? Is it, is it about your family and how you grew up? Do you include, we include things often like, um, like the place we grew up, the, a, a place matters, the people matter, and then our experiences along the way, what are the things that shape us and make us who we are? All of that matters, but, but how often do you include a spiritual part of your story? For some of you that might be more prominent, others of you might not be part of it all. But where is your story rooted ultimately? 
Spiritual questions can be the most confusing and perplexing, but, but Jesus is clear on the difference between who are his own and those who are not. And so today, as we, he pick, we pick up these themes, we see again that Jesus is sheep. If you are part of his flock, you know his voice, you are known by him, and you will follow him into eternal life. And so that's what we're going to see as we open the text and continue to see the way that it shapes who we are if we are part of Jesus' flock. So we read in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so the passage today begins with a little detail, that this is during the Feast of Dedication. John explains to us this is the wintertime, and Jesus is teaching in the colonnade of Solomon. That was a section of the temple. We, we don't really know why he included that detail, but he was there. He saw it happen. And, and it's also worth noting that in the early church, in the earliest days of the church, um, that's where Christians gathered, was in Solomon's colonnade, as they gathered to hear people teach about the, what the apostles had experienced in Christ's life and death and resurrection. But he tells us that it's during the Feast of Dedication. Now, we've been seeing this throughout John, that there are major feasts that get Jesus into Jerusalem. And the last one was the Feast of Tabernacles that brought him in to the Holy City. The Feast of Dedication is a little different, but you probably have heard something about it without knowing it. It's not a biblical feast, which means it's not unbiblical, but it doesn't appear in the Torah, so it wasn't commanded directly by God, but it marks a really important moment in the history of the Jewish people, and especially in Jerusalem. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian leader, sacked Jerusalem. He came in and he defiled the temple, did false sacrifices, and set up a pagan altar. And about three years later, in 164 BC, there was a revolt led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. You may have heard of the apocryphal books, 1 and 2 Maccabees. 
The, he, through, with his leadership, they reclaimed Jerusalem. They reconsecrated the temple. It was in December, and the Feast of Dedication went on for eight nights as they rededicated the temple to, God's, to the worship of the one true God. It was also called the Feast of Lights because people were encouraged to keep lamps lit in their homes throughout the entire eight nights and to celebrate that the right to worship, that, that light had come into darkness when it seemed like there was no hope. And so this is still celebrated to this day, but most often we don't hear about it as the Feast of Dedication. We hear about it, have you, have you figured out what holiday this is? One person got it, Hanukkah. It's still celebrated today as Hanukkah, the, the Feast of Lights. And so the, the, the atmosphere in Jerusalem, this, so it was a pretty relatively new festival for the Jewish people. There had only been, I mean, for us, 160 or 190 years sounds like a long time. In global scope, when you're talking about if you've ever been to actual places that actually have ancient things, um, that is not a very long time. It was a relatively new feast, but it, was some, it had the same kind of environment as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a big celebration that would go on for over a week, but it was, the thing that made it different is it was something that families would celebrate together in their homes. And so this is the context now that it's telling us this is when Jesus is there. And so we see him expand on his teaching that was in the first half of the chapter that he is the good shepherd. And so that's what we're going to look at today. It's a very simple outline. And so if you're taking notes, it's not going to be that much to take unless you take notes on more than hits the screen, um, which would be great. So the, we're looking at Jesus is the good shepherd, part two. <laughs> It's a very creative title that I'm sure will stick with all of you and change your life. <laughs> all right, and two basic looks we're going to have today. We see those who don't hear Jesus' voice and those who do. And so first, those who don't believe are not, those who don't believe are not Jesus' sheep. If this is very simple. It's very clear in the text that, that they do not believe. And Jesus says, because you don't believe, you are not my sheep. You are, you don't, because, and that's the, that's the core of it. And what we see in, in here immediately is that, that the people that don't believe in Jesus have misplaced expectations and, and misguided interpretations. And so these are the things that we see Jesus expose. Now, if you notice, and if, you've, if you read John, you'll remember that, that there, are, um, there, there is an overarching theme throughout John that we've looked at, that John wrote all of these things down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here, both titles are used. Did you notice that in the two interactions Jesus has? They come to him and they say, and you love this, right? Because they, these people come to Jesus and they say to him, hey, are you just going to make it easy, like, are you the Messiah or not? Can you just tell us? Like, make it plain. And Jesus says, I've already told you. And you still don't believe. And then they're mad at him for calling himself the Son of God. And so it's the two things that John wrote this down so that we might believe about Jesus. And it's showing that this group of people does not believe either one, even though they have Jesus standing in front of them. And so why do they miss it? Well, I think they miss that Jesus is the Messiah because they have misplaced expectations. And they miss, miss that Jesus is the Son of God because they have misguided interpretations. 
And so, so with this, up to this point, Jesus hadn't revealed himself explicitly as the Messiah to any Jewish people in John's gospel. And so that's worth noting here. So when they say, like, make this plain, are you or are you not the Messiah? And Jesus says, I told you already. Well, he hadn't actually said the words, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who has come, that has been prophesied to restore God's people. He hadn't made it that explicit. But do you see what he points to here? He says, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe them because you're not my sheep. And so when Jesus says, I've told you already, they, he, what he's saying is, you have seen everything that I have been doing. Is that not enough for you? Is that not been enough evidence for you? The only person he's actually admitted or, or said to them directly that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, so far in the whole gospel was the Samaritan woman at the well. But here, but if you remember back when he, when we looked at, when Jesus fed the multitude and took the loaves and fish and fed 5,000 men and others that were there, remember then, do you remember how that ended? They were ready to take Jesus by force to crown him, to make him king. See, the expectations that people had and carried in to what the Messiah was and, and, and what the Messiah would be completely shaped their ability to recognize the work of God in Christ. They were misplaced. Their expectations that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a military and political leader, someone who would come in and similar to Judas Maccabees, would, would overthrow an, an, a, an occupying force, that he would overthrow Rome, and that he would lead the Jewish people to self-rule and reinstitute a theocratic kingdom of Israel, and that it would be centered on Jerusalem and centered on Israel and centered on a particular ethnic group of the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and, and so they were looking for that expectation. That expectation was so prominent in people's minds it was so shaping to the way that they read scripture that when God took on flesh and was standing in front of them and performing signs in front of them, healing a blind man, feeding a multitude of people, they still could not believe that it was actually him. And like we've seen all the way through John, we have to be careful because it's easy for us to look back and read this gospel and know the end of the story and know where things go and wonder, like, how could people miss this? How could they have missed it? But there's a reality that we do the same thing. We have expectations for how, who God is and how God will act and, and, and expectations of what it means to follow Christ and to follow God. And we, we have a, every one of us has a tendency to read our expectations back into God's word rather than allowing God's word to shape us and our expectations of what's happening in this world. The difference, theologians call this the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is very convenient. This is like Bible verses as magical slogans for our life, Christianity, where we take meaning that we're looking for and find a Bible verse that will support it and read our expectations into the text. None of us comes to the Bible objectively. 
And so we have to fight through our expectations and fight through our subjectivity to try to come to a point where we can actually understand what Scripture is saying in its context and then draw that meaning out and then see how it applies to our lives and how it confronts our idolatry and how it, how it, how it comforts us in our affliction. Like it, but it starts with God's Word, not the other way around. And we see this all over the place. I mean, this is something we talk about often because we're in D.C. and it's in the air here, but it's throughout our country right now. We see the damage that is done when people take Christianity and read it into their political philosophy and ideology. And the damage that is done to the gospel on right and left when people use Jesus as their campaign slogan and use his word to support their ideologies rather than realizing that no political party in the history of humanity has ever captured the fullness of God's values. We start with the text and allow that to inform how we engage with this world. Don't start with your established ideology and then read it into the text. Okay, so Jesus up to this point when he says, like, listen, I did tell you, look at what I've done. Remember that in John so far, we have seen six of seven signs that he performs. He had changed water into wine in Cana. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the man at the pool who had been crippled for 38 years, and they were angry with him because it was on the Sabbath. Then he, he fed over 5,000 with fish and loaves. He walked on water and then came back to Jerusalem and again on the Sabbath healed a man who had been born blind. And remember there, we saw the same thing. People had an expectation that the man was blind because of his parents' sin or his own sin, and they had a, because of that, they could not believe that it was even the guy when he was standing in front of them. Do you remember people were like, in that story, it says that some of the crowd were like, hey, this is the guy who we've seen begging for money. Others were like, nah, it just looks like him. <laughs> Like, how dehumanizing is that? The guy's healed. It's the first time he can ever see these people in his life, and they're saying to him, you're not who you are. And, and so we can become blinded in the same way because we have misplaced expectations. They also show misguided interpretations. So this is the second part of what Jesus says when, when he, he says to them, like, and you can see this too, right? Like, Jesus is poking at him here because he doesn't just leave it at, well, you're not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep, but my, she my sheep... They hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Um, and by the way, I and the Father are one. <laughs> like, he didn't have to throw that in there, right? But he did, and they picked up rocks ready to stone him. And when they did, he, he, sa he, sa he says, like, okay, what have I done? He says, it's not what you've done. It's that you're a heretic. And he goes then, is it not written in your law? He quotes Psalm 82 here. It says, which, this is what it says. It, if, if God used the term gods for these people, then how could I not call myself the son of God? Now, this gets kind of complex. You can, we can dig into this and get into Psalm 82, and there's value there, but Jesus is showing like from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, language that has been used. And so he's kind of saying, like, you can't, this isn't actually heresy by your own standards, by your own scripture. And remember, he says, scripture cannot be broken. But, but I think we can get into too much overanalysis on what Jesus is doing with Psalm 82 here, to be honest. Now, that's hard for me to say because I love the New Testament use of the old. I love, there's so much value in going back into context, and that's where some of the most profound points in all of Scripture are, is when we see the connectivity of God's plan across, his, across all of human history. But here, Jesus is kind of pulling a the theological okey-doke. 
He, he throws this, this out there, and it's just like a confusing thing that people are, that buys him a little bit of breathing time so that he gets to what he closes with here. So he, he gets them, like, off, they're, they're, remember, they're holding rocks. And so, and so he challenges them by appealing to their own scripture, but then he closes it by saying, listen, if I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, so again, the works are the witness. If I do them, then believe, or believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And then they start to arrest him and he escapes again. And so he kind of like gives them like a little, it's almost like a slap. Whoa, that was, I didn't mean to go there. <laughs> That's a little too close <laughs> after, after this year's Academy Awards. Uh, but it kind of knocks him off balance <laughs> and, and gives him the chance to say what he needed to say and then slip out. And it's, but the way that they're interpreting God's word is misguided. The way they're interpreting God's work right in front of them. When he's saying, look at the things God is doing, and they're misinterpreting it because they, it, it, they, because they have wrong expectations, but it's changing the way they engage with God's word and his work in the world. That, that the people who are not Jesus' sheep look at the works of God, and they miss out the true significance. They miss the heartbeat because they get caught in their own presuppositions that are misplaced. And again, before we get too proud on this, we need to remember that every one of us is prone to do this too. When, when we have that, the, when, when we sit in misplaced expectations of who God is, then of course we're going to miss the way that he's working in front of us. And we will call the good things of God bad. And, we'll notice, and, and other things that we'll look at we'll find security in that have nothing to do with his work. And so today, our theological assumptions about who God is and how God works can blind us from seeing the work of God right in front of us. Like, you might say, like, okay, I, I don't really see miraculous things happening around me. I, I don't really, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Why don't we see those things now? Is it that God is no longer working in this world, or is it that you don't have eyes to see what is actually miraculous right in front of you? Like, is it that God has gone silent and distant, or is it that you have a view on the world that has taken all mystery and all awe and all wonder out of life because you have an explanation for everything that undercuts the beauty of God's work? In our desire to understand and explain things, we've lost the ability to be awestruck at God's provision and protection and care. We think that we've earned everything we've got not realizing that none of us would have any of the talents we have, any of the gifts we have, any of the opportunities that we've had, if God had not put us exactly where we are. Amen. Every, every breath we take, every time your heart beats, is because God is sustaining your life. And you look at that and you, want, and you say, there's nothing miraculous. We're told that we can pray anytime, from anywhere, outwardly, in our spirits, in our minds, Silently or out loud, we can pray and that the almighty creator of the universe hears our prayer and is able to act in real time in this world. And we say there's nothing miraculous around us. We, we, it's because we don't have eyes to see. 
And here, this is, this is a hard reality to grasp because these people that Jesus is teaching, remember, they, there's, there's a mix here. Some of them believe, some of them don't. There's disagreement. That's what we just saw right before the passage we read today. There was division among the Jews because of these words. Some said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why would we listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of a man who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so some were seeing the work of Jesus, and they understood that he must be the Christ. He must be the Messiah. Others thought he was crazy. And so there was a divide among the people. So it's not like all of them were rejecting Christ, but this is exactly what he was saying when he said, you might think that you're within the sheep pen, but only his sheep would hear his voice when they're called out of it. And so this is important for us because proximity is not the same as presence. Information is not the same as illumination. We can, you can sit here on Sundays and go to community group and read the Bible and read theology and have a proximity to the power and presence of God and have information about who God is and still not be hearing the voice of the good shepherd calling to you because you've stopped up your ears. Remember in James, it says that demons believe and they tremble. Satan knows God's word better than any of us. He knows theology better than any of us. He has been in the throne room of God. We read about that in Job. And still, he hates God. You can be close, but not experience the presence of God. You can know things and not see the work of God for what it is. And so the question today is, do we hear the voice of the good shepherd? The response is violent because whenever our framework of the world and our safety and prosperity are threatened, we get mad and defensive just like these people. But here, he, so here we see this. Now, why is this so important to us? Again, because John said at the end of his gospel, he tells us in chapter 20, that these things were written down. He could have written a lot of things, but these things were written down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His works bear witness to who he is, and we're going to continue to see that play itself out. So those who do not believe are not Jesus' sheep. The second point is that Jesus' sheep will live forever. This is in verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want you to hear that again. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Jesus then says, I and the Father are one. And so the characteristics of Jesus' sheep are simple here, right? It's the same things we read earlier in the chapter, that, that there are three basic ways that he, you know if you're his sheep. You will hear his voice, Jesus knows you, and you'll follow him. And remember, this is imagery of shepherds in the Middle East that still today, Jesus isn't driving the sheep, that shepherds in the Middle East will call their sheep and they will follow the shepherd as he leads them to where they need to go. But they are secured then, so those are the simple characteristics of if you're Jesus' sheep, but then what we get from it, the gift we get, is eternal life. 
Now again, we saw this last week, that there's abundance in life now and for eternity, that you go in and out of the safety of the pen, but out to green pasture and places to be nourished and fed and refreshed by cool water. And, and here, though, we get eternal assurance as well. He says that you'll never perish. Now, obviously, Jesus can't mean that we'll never die, because over the last 2,000 years since he taught this, people have died. But he's talking about here, in an eternal way, we will never, our life does not end in death. And so he's saying, you won't perish, but no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand, because, no one, because he is greater than all. And so, again, Jesus has alluded to full life all the way through this gospel. He's talked about, about providing living water. He's talked about being the bread of life. He's talked about, about bringing light into darkness and, and leading sheep to good pasture. But now he gets to it more explicitly because they'd said, like, tell us plainly. And so he does. He says, look at the works I do. And now, if you come to me, if you're one of my own, you will have eternal life secured for you. No one can snatch you from his hand. In the context of this chapter, that means that thieves and robbers who come in and their only desire is to, is to steal and kill and destroy, no thieves and robbers can snatch you from the good shepherd's hand. The prowling wolf that comes to slaughter the sheep, no one can snatch you from Jesus' hand. The selfish hired hands who bail out on the sheep when there's any sign of danger or trouble, Still, no one can snatch you from the good shepherd's hands. No one, not anything. And Jesus appealed again to God the Father. Why? Because the basis of this isn't on the sheep and their ability to hear Jesus' voice. It's not on, on the sheep and their strength in pursuing the shepherd. Everything here is based on the power of the Father who is greater than all. And basically what Jesus is saying here is, if you are one of my sheep, you are completely secure because no one can steal from God. And so this is the, if, if you follow Jesus, your salvation is secure because no one can steal from God. It is secure as God is powerful. It's dependent on God's power, not on our own. Now, some of you may get uneasy with points like this and say, is he preaching eternal security? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to stand here with Charles Spurgeon, who said, I don't know in what other way to preach from this text than the one in which I'm preaching it. Somebody says, oh, that's Calvinism. I do not care what it is. It is scriptural. I have this inspired book before me, and I can't see any meaning in the words before me if they do not mean that those who have received life from the Lord Jesus have an endless inheritance. I can't make them mean anything else. I give unto my sheep eternal life must mean believers are eternally secure. The trouble we have is that these doctrines of grace the, whether you call it Calvinism or Reformed theology. And listen, this, these are secondary issues at Redemption Hill. Those of you who've been through Foundations class hear this, that, that you don't have to sign on to the canons of Dort in order to be a member here. Like, this is an open hand, and different people are at different places as they process this. But, but I can only preach to you what I see in the text today. But this stuff, this, this theological stream gets a bad name, mostly because of bad people that are in the middle of it that use theology as a hammer against people to destroy people and beat them down rather than seeing the wonders of grace and trusting God and having rest and hope in it. 
it's amazing to me that the people who claim to preach the doctrines of grace are usually the most graceless people. And it's true. And so we've got to be careful on that. But, but it, it, we get into like understanding, how do we understand the way that we are saved and how do we understand the work of God within us? Here what Jesus is saying to us is pretty clear. How, how are we saved? Well, it's not that we come to such a great knowledge of the Savior. It's not based on our ability to pursue him. It's because the shepherd knows his sheep. Like The sheep didn't choose to be in that flock. A shepherd brings them into that flock. You didn't choose to be born into the family you're in, to carry the name that you carry. You were born into it. And so we don't know all the dynamics of salvation. And I want to be clear here, this isn't determinism. It's not that you don't have any choice in your life. The Bible is clear that human beings are fully responsible. Jesus is not saying to the people who aren't his sheep here, he's not saying like, hey, you guys don't, it doesn't really matter. You have no hope, so I'm not going to talk to you. What he says is, at least believe in the works that you've seen. He's pleading with them to open their eyes. Believe in what you've seen, and they're rejecting him in the midst of it. See, the, the system, we, we get stuck to, because people try to figure out ways to condense really complex tensions in scripture into really simplistic answers. How many of you have heard the acronym TULIP? A lot of you, okay. Those of you who haven't, um, I'm sorry for what's about to happen. <laughs> I hate it. Um, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a Calvinist. Like, I don't think you can be anything other than you do all five or you don't do any. But Tulip was not written by John Calvin, and I don't know how it takes his name. It was written, I believe, in the 1830s by a guy in Albany, New York, who the canons of Dort were this great reform statement, and they happened in Holland, so he was like, well, Holland has tulips. We remember it with tulip. That's literally it. Um, but the, what it tells, it tries to capture some of the doctrine by saying first that that humans are totally depraved. That's the T, total depravity. That's not saying, I think we need to be careful here because people often hear that and they're like, I could be way worse than I am. And you're right. Every one of us could make a worse decision today than the ones we're gonna make. And it's not saying that you're as bad as you can be. It's saying that every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our character has been impacted by the reality of sin. We don't experience any life that has not been impacted. The next one is unconditional election, saying we don't choose these things, but God calls us to himself. It's not based on our works. That's like Ephesians 2, right? It's not based on works so that no one can boast. The L means limited atonement, and this is where I have a hard time with this particular grid. Because Don Carson talks about this in his little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, that it is inherently offensive to limit something as beautiful as the atonement of Christ. And so Spurgeon preferred the word particular redemption. Carson likes definite atonement. But two-dip doesn't really have the same, like, <laughs> it doesn't really work. And so, it, but, it, but what this is saying is not, it, it, that Jesus' death is sufficient for all of humanity, but it is applied effectively to those who follow him. I is irresistible grace, that if God opens your eyes to his glory and beauty, that you will follow him. And P is perseverance of the saints, or preservation of the saints, as I would prefer to say. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is if you are one of his sheep, you will be preserved to the end. Your, your eternity is secure in him, and based on him, not on yourself. That it is not the power or strength 
or consistency of our faith that matters, but it is the object of our faith that matters. I actually prefer the word bacon, (laughs) which is bad people already elected, completely atoned for, overwhelmingly called, and never falling away. But we need to understand that wherever you fall on this difficult argument, or if you've never considered it before, then then it's something at some point every one of us is confronted with. How do we reconcile divine sovereignty and free will of humanity? There's nowhere in scripture that we can minimize God's sovereignty. And there is nowhere in scripture that releases human beings of our responsibility. This is why Paul stands in Athens and said, God is calling, the time has now come when God is calling all people everywhere to repent. We are responsible for ourselves, and if that tension is not resolved in Scripture, then we need to be leery of any theological system that resolves tensions that Scripture leaves tense. There are plenty of warnings in Scripture we need to take seriously, and like Paul said, should we sin more that grace abounds more? No, certainly not. And so we take the warnings seriously, but if you are one of Jesus' sheep, you are absolutely secure, and you have nothing to worry about with eternity. Even this imagery is helpful. Again, like sheep, sheep don't choose their shepherd. It's not like you have shepherds up for auction. You have sheep that go up for auction, and they are brought into a flock. And sheep have zero ability to protect themselves and, or care for themselves. Have you guys ever seen the pictures of sheep that get lost for a while? There was one in 2015 that I believe is still the world record holder, and they named him Chris, (laughs) because he was in Australia, and that's what Australians do. So Chris the sheep from Australia was found, he could barely walk, and he could no longer eat, because his fleece had gotten too thick. He had no ability to do anything for himself, and you can see what he looks like after they found him and helped him out. Normally, I read, sheep are sheared, he is a merino wool sheep, but none of that wool was usable because it was gross. And, but norm, what I from what I understand, usually when sheep are sheared of his type, they have about 11 pounds of wool that are, that's sheared off of them in about three minutes. Like, it's a thing. They just are rolling through the sheep from the flock. Chris, when he was found, they removed 18 inches of fleece that measured 89 pounds smashing the previous record of 60 pounds. And so none of it was usable, but the guy that did the, the procedure of shearing him said, he was quoted as saying, like, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but I hope it ends up in a museum or something. <laughs> like, so we need to, this is the image of who we are, every one of us. That's us on our own versus in the hands of a shepherd. Like, on our own, We have no capability to protect ourselves. We have no capability to to take care of ourselves, to feed ourselves. We are like Chris with 90 pounds of extra fleece and baggage. Praise God that we have a shepherd who can do better for us. That can peel away the things, even if we're scared and even if it hurts. I don't think Chris probably liked being sheared, but he needed it for him to be able to live. If you are one of Jesus' own, no one can take you out of his hand. That means for us, there is no person in this world that can actually destroy you. They can come at you, they can do damage to your heart, they can attack you, they might be able to kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. Satan cannot take you out of God's hand. He's called a prowling lion in, in 1 Peter, we could call him a wolf in this passage. He is looking to destroy every one of us. 
But if you are one of Jesus' sheep, he's got to go through the good shepherd first. There is no government that has power over your soul. People who cause you the deepest wounds, wounds and make you carry the, your deepest and the worst of your shame, who hate you and treat you like you're less than human, still cannot remove you from Jesus' hand as the good shepherd. And this also means that you can't jump out. You are part of no one. Jesus doesn't say, no one can take me, you from my hand unless you want to go. He says, nobody will take you from my hand. You cannot backslide your way out of Jesus' hands. And yes, for every one of us, like we sing the hymn, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We sing that because, and there's some that are like, we shouldn't sing that. It's not reformed. No. Because we are responsible for ourselves, and every one of us tries to run. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 minutes or 10 years. There's going to be points where you try to run. You will try to feed yourself. You will try to find ways around the shepherd and away from the shepherd to try to listen to other voices. You will get lazy and stop listening, which is when it's good to be part of a flock and actually be embedded in a local community with other sheep because there's times when the shepherd's voice is heard and the flock starts moving and we might not hear it, but we just get carried along because we're like, oh, they're going. <laughs> Thank God for that because we don't always get it clearly. You will wish, you will get your wish at times, and you will find yourself on your own, and you will end up spiritually looking like Chris the sheep. And like Chris the sheep, it will expose your helplessness again. And every single time, the Good Shepherd will come for you, he will find you. He'll take shears to you, and it might hurt, and it might be scary, but he will cut off the gross undergrowth that is, that is encasing our hearts and he'll lead us to food and drink and life and to lie down in green pastures. Tony Evans says here, believers are not eternally secure because of their grip on God, but because of his grip on them. If you come to Jesus by faith, he's got you. When you're too weak and your hands go limp, he'll still be hanging on to you. Listen, the focus of this whole chapter and the whole book of John and the whole Bible is that it's not just gifts that God gives us, but it's, it, it is the power of the giver that secures them for us. That the promise of God and the promise of Christ here isn't based on our, on our goodness at being sheepy. It's based on Jesus knowing his sheep and caring for them, having the power to give us life. And what is the ultimate sign we have? Like Jesus says to the people here, if you, don't, if you don't want to hear my words, at least believe the works you've seen. Like it's right in front of you. How do you not see how God is working? And for us, even now, you might hear that and you wonder if you're not a Christian or if you're struggling with your faith, you might wonder like, well, that's fine, but they watched him heal a blind man. They still rejected him. But don't you understand that everything has been written down for us by eyewitnesses so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, the very thing people were rejecting. And we have a work that we know about that they didn't even know about yet in John chapter 10 because it hadn't happened yet. Everything in the Christian faith is reliant on one single work of Jesus and the historicity and accuracy of the reporting on it, that Jesus was killed on a cross by Pontius Pilate, that he was laid in the ground for three days, but on the third day he raised from death to life. He didn't just resuscitate, he was resurrected and ascended to the throne in heaven where he now rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. 
The resurrection is everything, and it is the ultimate sign, the ultimate work, that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that he is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the good shepherd who he told us in, in, earlier on in verses 17 and 18 that for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. This is Palm Sunday, which means we mark in the church calendar that this is the week that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem by the crowds who saw him raise Lazarus, which we're going to begin to get to next week. It's the beginning of Holy Week where we understand that, that Jesus was in Jerusalem and it was the events that led to his death. He told his disciples for years, three years of ministry alongside each other, he told them, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be put on trial, I'll be killed, and on the third day I'll raise again. And still when they got to Jerusalem, the disciples were afraid and shocked that Jesus was arrested that he suffered at the hands of the leaders, that he was killed, and that he was placed in a grave. But still, their salvation, the mark that God had on them to use them in their lives, was not dependent on their ability to understand Jesus' words at the moment. It was because Jesus had called them out and they heard his voice. And the same is true for every one of us today. And so we, we come back to the idea of an origin story. There are lots of important details in our lives. There are lots of things that make every one of us unique. Our families, our cultures, where we grew up, those are beautiful things. But if you're a Christian, those aspects of our lives become secondary as an identifier, that we are first and foremost following the Good Shepherd, a part of his flock, Remember that Jesus said to the Jewish people, I've got sheep that aren't of this pen, and I've got to go find them too. For most of us, that means us. And that means that we're brought together and we don't lose who we are, your ethnicity, where you grew up, your family background, your experiences are critical, they're important. Jesus doesn't call us to sameness, but he does bring us together as one flock following the good shepherd. And if you're in Christ, he becomes the most important part of your story. You become a sheep as part of his flock. You're a, a child of God and his family, and every other aspect we, of who we are comes under that heading, that I am a helpless sheep like Chris, reliant on a good shepherd who cares for me, who calls me, who leads me. And no matter how bad things get here, my future is secure. You can rest in that church. No one can ever snatch you out of the good shepherd's hand. And all this is written again that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so as it says in Psalm chapter 95, today let us worship and bow down. It says, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Why? For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Those, so those of you who are wrestling or don't know if you're a Christian or are not a Christian, this is my plea to you today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for the ways that we act like foolish, helpless sheep? That we do run away and try to find our own way. That, that, we, do, um, that we do scatter. We try to think that we're self-sufficient. We think of ourselves as much more than we are. And we think that we can go on without a shepherd to care for us. Would you forgive us, Lord? Would you expose our hearts today and cut away what needs to get cut away so that like that sheep we saw in the picture, that, that it, might, it might hurt, it might, it might feel cold and hard, but that you would strip it away so that we can actually experience life, to be able to move and live and breathe and eat and drink in your presence. And Father, I pray today that that in our time together, through your word being read, through the songs that we sing, through the prayers that we pray together, through, um, through the way that you're working in individuals as they sit and listen to your word preached or hear the music, we pray that your voice would come through the noise of our lives. That we would hear the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd, and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God that that would shape who we are. And pray today, for, Lord, especially for those who are feeling weak. Their hearts feel low. And they wonder where you are. They're walking through a dark valley right now and they, they don't see you clearly. Pray that you would bring light to the darkness and that your spirit would move in power to bring a deeper assurance of their salvation. That they would feel the kiss of their Father God through the Spirit. And so Lord, as we turn to the Lord's table together and to continue worshiping and singing together, open our ears to hear your voice, we pray. Amen.